Hello, and welcome to The Amazing Exec Show. I'm your host, David Rosen, and this is episode 103. We're talking today with the CEO of a high-tech software and systems reseller named Rob Hassold, CEO of SimQuest. I think what you're going to find interesting today is that Rob is an entrepreneurial hero and CEO being involved in fast-paced, high-tech, and internet-based companies throughout my career. I'm rarely surprised about how businesses survive and what they need to do to decide on sustaining their business. I hope you find interesting today hearing from Rob about how he has actually made decisions in his business proactively where he affected 20, 30, 50% of his revenue and traded off acquiring new product lines that he would sell that he knew would sustain and grow his business over time. What would you do? Listen in. Talking about some of the major pivots we went through, we were in the early days of additive manufacturing or 3D printing. And even back then it wasn't even called 3D printing. It was called rapid prototyping. We tried unsuccessfully twice to enter into that space, really picking the wrong vendors, the wrong partnerships, the wrong technology, and got beat up a little bit with two trials in picking up the technology. But eventually we got it right. Just about four and a half years ago, we pivoted from a single vendor, which was Stratasys, to several different vendors. And at the time we did that, Stratasys was over 50%, 5-0% of our business. So imagine flicking a switch and losing 50% of your business overnight and the recurring revenue stream that goes along with that. So it was quite a risky maneuver, but we wanted to address some of the positive changes occurring in the market and being able to address that more high level production manufacturing capability that was hitting the streets through other technology providers such as HP, desktop metal and others. I hope you found that interesting. There's a lot more where that came from in this discussion with Rob. I hope you enjoy the program and let us know what you think. Let's get to it. Acrylic Group welcomes you to the Amazing Execs Show, where business leaders learn from other leaders. Join us, along with your host, David Rosen, the CEO of Acrylic Group. We discover and dive into stories from executives, founders, and owners and what separates them from success and failure. Hear and see amazing leaders from startups, middle market, and global leading companies. Now, kick back and enjoy watching our videocast or listening to our podcast. The choice of media is all yours. Come take this amazing journey with us and learn how great people do the thing they do. I am pleased to introduce Rob Hasselt. Rob started with a technical background and career as an engineer and started his company now named SimQuest in 1990. During his 30 plus years, he has accumulated many firsts in industry, along with interesting and compelling inflection points as he grew his business from a desert start reselling one product to being the number one reseller for several brands, including Stratasys and Mastercam for the manufacturing industries. His company has also been the largest seller of podcasts for of products for the East Coast and Northeast for other companies as well. You are unique in that you have made some really bold moves in uncharted markets that most leaders would avoid they were really critical and important for you to be able to sustain your growth in your revenue and your profit in your business. But also, it's important that they were critical to retain your business momentum as some of your products were reaching maturity margins from your suppliers who were squeezing your profitability and the industry's profitability. Tell us more about SimQuest and what you've done there and where you are today. Sure. I'll start off with a little bit of an overview of SimQuest. We're what's known as a VAR or a value-added reseller. So for the most part, we don't produce the products that we sell. We're basically a representative or agent for companies that produce 
the hardware products or software that we represent and the specific markets that we sell into are the manufacturing and engineering spaces. And the products we represent are manufacturing software, computer-aided design and manufacturing products, as well as reverse engineering and 3D scanning technology used for inspection and other applications. And then, of course, 3D printing as well, which many people think that's only been around for several years, but We've been involved, heavily involved in representing 3D printing technologies for over 25 years. That's the basics of our business. And as far as the first, I think one of the things that really sets SimQuest apart is the fact that we were very early adopters of new technologies and products. Back in the early days, 30 years ago, we represented a product called ProEngineer which was the first company to create an innovative CAD technology for solid modeling called parametric solid modeling. And we were one of the early resellers of that product. And that's really grown to be an industry standard. And then from there, we transitioned to a product called SolidWorks, which at the time we picked it up, we were the first reseller globally with SolidWorks. And we displaced the ProEngineer software, which was about 27% of our business. Those, that kind of talks a little bit to some of the bold moves that you're talking about. And we can certainly delve into those changes that we've made over the past 31 years, how that was accomplished. In most cases, successfully. I won't say it always went smoothly, but <laughs> in most cases, successfully. Then, of course, being very early into the 3D printing or additive manufacturing space as well. We've really led the industry in, in a lot of areas. That's amazing, Rob. You're a primary vendor now for a lot of the major players in 3D printing and additive manufacturing. Can you talk more about those? You actually are in the lead in some of the global spaces as well. Yeah. So, again, talking about some of the major pivots we went through. We were in the early days of additive manufacturing or 3D printing. And even back then, it wasn't even called 3D printing. It was called rapid prototyping. We tried unsuccessfully twice to enter into that space, really picking the wrong vendors, the wrong partnerships, the wrong technology, and got beat up a little bit with two two trials and picking up the technology, but eventually we, eventually we got it right. And we were able to successfully start a relationship with a company called Stratasys. And that went very well for many years. And unfortunately, because of many different reasons, we felt that we had outgrown the partnership. One of the reasons was really to address the evolution of 3D printing from more of a prototyping technology to production. And just about four and a half, a little over four and a half years ago, we pivoted from a single vendor, which was Stratasys, to several different vendors. And at the time we did that, Stratasys was over 50% five, zero percent of our business. So imagine flicking a switch and losing 50% of your business overnight and the recurring revenue stream that goes along with that. So it was quite a risky maneuver, but we wanted to address some of the positive changes occurring in the market and being able to address that more high level production manufacturing capability that was hitting the streets through other technology providers such as HP, Desktop Metal, and others. That was a little bit of a challenging time. And then a year and a half, two years after doing that, we get hit with COVID. Yeah, it, was, it has been an interesting four and a half years. I think we met around that time and it was really interesting to hear how you were thinking. Can you talk a little bit more about, because I've seen this in, and I've been involved in thousands of companies, but I've seen this in some rare occasions. In the occasion of EMC early on in its business, a guy that I worked for went over to be the chief operating officer of EMC at the time, and they were about 170 million. 
And one of the first things that he did within his first 30, within his first three or four months was he, pat, he charted a path that said that we're going to get rid of 30% of our business because that business line is not as profitable as our current main product line and that our future main product lines are going to be growing even faster and more profitable. Therefore, this is diluting the value of the total business and that a dollar spent not putting into that business was going to be great value. And by the way, Mike was the guy who became CEO and for 20 years and turned it into a multi-billion dollar global business. But he started off with doing that. So tell us a little bit more about that process. What were you thinking? What drove the decision that you can share with us? And tell us what you learned from it and what would you do again? What would you not do again? Yeah, so I'll even back up a little further and it goes with how do you define success and what do you want your success in business to be? For me, I wanted to really stay with the state-of-the-art technology. I really wanted to keep things fresh in the company. My my family's background was they own a small chain of five and 10 stores and I always taught to make sure that you had the end caps of the displays with the rotational fresh merchandise to keep people interested, keep the staff interested. And maybe I have ADHD or something, but I always felt that I wanted to keep things fresh. And maybe that's not the right course of action for everybody because quite frankly, it's very hard to do. It's very disruptive. It, you, you lose traction, you take a step back to hopefully make two steps forward. And a lot of my counterparts in the industry, you picked up their products and stayed the course for the past 20, 30 years and through many acquisitions, grew their businesses far larger than my company and got venture capital investment into the company and became wildly successful doing that. And that's not quite the route I decided to take, but the transition from a single 3D printing vendor to multiple vendors was very challenging. Part of what I've learned through this process, having gone through it a couple of times in the life of SimQuest, is you really have to do a very targeted methodology for making that change less painful to the staff, right? Because different people react to change differently. And if you've ever heard of the innovation adopters curve, or it's actually the Rogers Diffusion Innovation Theory Curve, talks about how you have those early adopters, those innovators, and then at the tail end, you have the laggards. And I think of people with change in that respect, that there's a small segment of the company that will actually innovate and make change happen within the company. And then there's the vast majority in the middle that are very uncomfortable with change. And then of course, at the tail end, you have the ones that as soon as they find out about an announcement, they go running out of the company meeting, never to be seen again. And I actually had that happen once when I announced change, when we decided to end our SolidWorks business and focus mainly on manufacturing, making sure that you introduce the change slowly and have the trust in your company that they'll keep some of these, some of this information confidential, right? Because you're not really able to disclose that to the outside world. So managing that change process is very important and very critical in success because we're all on the same team, we're all in the same boat. And if you're trying to make this change happen and people aren't aware of it, they're not going to be necessarily rowing in the same direction you're rowing. It's interesting because we're working with a lot of companies that are dealing with inflection points in their business, dealing with cash flow problems and as we <clears throat> as a team we've thought about this because the whether you're doing incremental change or whether you're doing something transformative where you've got to change the way you the people you're talking to as customers or the way you're working or the way you're delivering service from a software product to a hardware product and those differences that when it comes to change we've realized in our experience that the people issues far outweigh any smart business process or logic or rationale. Does that resonate with you as well, Rob? It sounds like it does. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Prepping the team for this change or whatever change you might be going through is extremely important. Even though I've had many people over time warn me about bringing the, the company into the fold and for fear that that information is going to be disclosed on the outside because you don't want to, you want to start that disruption internally but you don't want to start that disruption externally. You got, there's a lot of things that have to be done to, to prep the company and operations. And you don't want, you don't want to stop doing what you're still supposed to be doing. And if everybody defocuses on what's bringing in the revenue currently and giving up on that prematurely, that could be devastating to the business. So when you look at the people issues, those dominate the business and the a lot of the other issues in business, the logic, the process, the materials. We've looked at and found that the, the people issues, when I've done acquisitions and when I've done investments and when I've looked at changing large organizations, I've looked at people as the number one issue, followed by market intimacy. How well do you understand your customers and know them? and where they buy, where they learn, what their buying cycle looks like, what their compensation is, what risk tolerance do they have? What risk tolerance does their company have? So market intimacy and customer intimacy are critical. The third area is product viability and doability. How can you actually do something with this? Is there a value proposition that fits with the market that you're focusing on? And is it very clear and is it easy to understand and then the fourth area is really managing your business from an economic and a financial and an operational viewpoint. If you consider those four things, did these foundations play a role in your leadership and management over the last 30 plus years? And besides for the people? Yeah, from the financial aspect, you can't just, you got to prep the company financially for these pivots, right? You just, you can't be running the company paycheck to paycheck and all of a sudden try and produce one of these major pivots. You're gonna have to build up a war chest in some ways to make sure that you can weather that storm. And that's a very important aspect to, to make it through these changes. Yeah, and again, going back to the people side of it, that's very instrumental. I will tell you though, that from the market acceptance side of it, sometimes when I'm doing these pivots, it's I'm doing them a little bit premature, which maybe isn't the best route to do it. For example, when we first did this pivot and I was looking to embrace technologies that were going to do more of the high production or moderate production additive manufacturing. This is moving away. This is the Stratasys. Moving away from prototyping right. more towards production and 3D printing. We did that simultaneously with both the plastic side, so printers that print in plastic, but also started the process on the metal side. And the metal side was really not ready for prime time. A lot of what I knew was going to be happening wasn't going to be happening for a couple of years, but we started the relationship specifically with the, initially with desktop metal. And when you're an early adopter into a startup like that, not everything goes right from the get-go. There's right. product introduction delays. There's technologies that's released that's not ready for prime time. And this is not just with one single vendor. We ran into these bumps in the road with several vendors. And we wound up really, some of those relationships really were not profitable for the first couple of years. And as an example with desktop metal, now they're in a position where they're delivering on the technology works extremely well. Their shop system is a great system to be 3D printing metal parts at moderate volumes of thousands to tens of thousands. Great for a segment of our customer on the software side, which is the typical job shops. And we also have a relationship with exact metal, which is a more traditional direct metal laser sintering process. And these are all relatively young companies that weren't around several years ago. And <laughs> right. fostering those relationships, them trying to figure out exactly what the right go-to-market strategy is and working through that relationship is very challenging, sometimes extremely 
painful, but what I will tell you, it, it can pay off. For example, just this past year, we were the number one global reseller of desktop metal. Awesome. And additionally, we were also the number one global reseller for exact metal as well. So metal yeah. 3D printing, which was an insignificant part of our business just two years ago, is 40% of our business today. Wow. And you so you recovered from letting your Stratasys or selling your Stratasys line. Interesting. Good for you, Rob. That's so how long did it take you from the time in which you thought about making this change and the time and actually you started making the change. And then the second question to that is how long did it take you to what did you what time frame did you expect to break even and get back to normalcy with the new products, the desktop metal and the other one? And what did it really take? So I would say I started thinking about making this change about three years before I did it. And one of the biggest challenges is as a company representing vendors or technology, typically if you're going to get any value from it, and we did get value from the Stratasys side of our business through a customer base swap. But very typically when you exit a relationship, you're usually prevented from selling into that space. So what I was trying to do is figure out, okay, how am I going to exit this relationship, get value for it, but at the same time, not being shut out from the 3D printing market for two years. And it took me a while to figure that out. I was lucky enough to find another reseller who was interested in our 3D printing business and had a smaller Mastercam customer base, which we represented. So at the same time, one of the other vendors that they were representing competed in that same space as Mastercam. So they weren't going to put a, a non-compete clause against me on the 3D printing side because then I would have asked them to do the same on the manufacturing or manufacturing mm. software side. So it wound up being an ideal situation to make this pivot and get some value out of it, but at the same time, be able to continue to sell 3D printing technology. So that was one thing. And then the time I expected it to take to at least start turning a profit I wouldn't say profitable because when you become cash flow positive, you're not necessarily profitable from all the effort you put in the previous years. But when I became, I expected to become cash flow positive in about a year and a half. And I expected to recoup and become profitable in about three, three and a half years. But seeing as two years into this, we wound up hit, being hit by a pandemic that stretched out the timelines a little bit. So last year was really our fourth year into it, was really when we became profitable. So towards the tail end of my expectations and we became cash flow positive a year before that. And mainly that was because of the pandemic. I think if the pandemic hadn't occurred, that it would have been more in line with my optimistic view of what would have occurred. Wow. Any other lessons that you learned from all of this that you could share? Yeah, I will tell you that if you have business partnerships that work and are fair and profitable, embrace those relationships, take care of those relationships, because those are far and few between. It's really hard to find good relationships in the business world. Throughout the course of history with SimQuest of 31 years, we probably had major relationships with a dozen and a half, two dozen, two dozen companies, minor relationships with maybe 50 companies. And I can look up my one hand and count the number of relationships that were truly ideal for SimQuest. And part of that is it may not be that they're wrong, but they're wrong for us. I've come to really appreciate 
the relationships and partnerships that I have that truly work for SimQuest. And as you can, as you've heard with our position in the market with some of our vendors, it's truly worked for those vendors as well. To your point, when you work with early stage companies that are na with a nascent technology coming into the market, they may not know how they need to be organized five years from now or two years from now in terms of how to get the market for their business. One of the things that I've always observed from the manufacturer side of the business is that they often shift their focus on the channels that they use to go to market. And some companies have gotten burned because they've gone from a heavy distributor and agent model to a direct sales model. And then all of a sudden they realize their mistake and they go back to a channel model. In the meantime, they're not as effective in their partnering and their compensation and their relationships. Is that partly what drove some of your decisions as well? Were the vendors changing their interest in keeping good partners and the way they compensated them versus their own alternatives? That is one of the key criteria that I look for in a partnership, that there's that they're a company that is channel centric, that they are embracing the resellers for the distribution of their products. And it may not be all their products because quite frankly, if you're selling a product that's a thousand or a couple of thousands, or maybe even several thousands of dollars, that might be ideal for a direct web store, a Shopify right. site or whatever. Then there's the real high end of the market the systems that sell for several hundreds of thousands of dollars where the volume isn't there. It's next to impossible for a reseller that's local to a specific territory to gain enough knowledge and experience about the products to, get, to do it justice. And certainly for the manufacturers, enough meat on the bone for those really high-end expensive products to sell those products direct. So there is Definitely a sweet spot in the market in that I would say that 15000 to $300,000 space where you really need a channel. Developing your own distribution, not only nationally, but globally is extremely expensive. Plus, I tend to feel that when you have your independent reseller whose heart and soul goes into the business and looking for every efficiency they can get is a more system and structure for both the company, the manufacturer and the customer so that the customer gets the best level of service and everything. So it's really been interesting and challenging in the 3D printing space because one of, the, one of the things that has done a lot of damage to the industry, I really think, is the easy money that's flown in, that's basically been put into this industry and invested in this industry. One, because 3D printing is a hot commodity and a hot topic. There's a, a lot of buzz going on in this industry, but also simply because of the M&A activity, the investment activity, is really hot right now. And I think that's caused problems for the vendors. It's caused product problems for the resellers and it's caused problems for the customers and prospects. In a normal environment where money isn't being pumped in so freely into a space, innovators have to really have a good solid business plan in, in place and they've even bootstrapped their own organizations. And they may think twice about trying to completely reinvent a wheel where they're creating their own hardware, they're creating their own software to support it, their go-to market strategy, their marketing teams, their software to everything that goes into building an organization. And we're seeing so much of that happening in the 3D printing space where companies are popping up right and left. Now, the problem for that is there's only so many independent resellers like a SimQuest around to absorb those product lines. And many of the pre-existing resellers are bound by non-competes. 
by hmm. the one manufacturer they're representing. And, a really good uh, point. Therefore, there's a problem out there because these companies that have a new twist on the technology that would have been better off just licensing that to other pre-existing companies are starting up their own companies and looking for distribution. And they're finding that there isn't enough reseller in the pool of resources to, to sell their products. And now they're in a situation where they have to sell direct because they can't find the resellers to sell those products. And it's an uncomfortable situation. It's also creating an environment where customers are completely confused because there's so many Me Too products out there that have only minors to themselves. And they're confused about what is the right technology for my company and for my application. And that's something that's causing a lot of problems. Interesting. So you're speaking to a classic evolving market, but maybe one that's maturing and being replaced. But my understanding is how much progress is being made? And this is a little industry geeky question, but how much progress is being made towards 3D printed products, not just being used for prototyping anymore, but to the point you were talking about earlier, where they're actually being put into production? Because the one thing I know about the manufacturing, 3D printing, and the like, the leather, laser sintering, is that the economics are completely different than traditional subtractive methods, where the economics of 3D printing, the cost stays the same across all parts. You can put 10 on a bed, you can put 50 on a bed, but the cost is still the same because the cost is mainly in the materials and the machine and the hours it takes to do it. So is it evolving now to where more 3D printed products are being put into production use? Yes, that's a, that's truly the exciting part for me. And that was something that's been talked about for the past 15, 20 years, because 3D printing has been around for 35 years. And in the beginning, the technology was extremely slow. The material inputs into the process were extremely expensive. And the end results of the parts were not for end use applications. They were extremely brittle, but, and that was even true up until five, 10 years ago. But re really the nice situation today is that material science is greatly evolving. The speeds of the machines are greatly evolving. What you can do today in a day, only a couple of years ago or several years ago took a month or two. So wow. the throughput is much greater, but, and the advantage to 3D printing is you don't have as much of an upfront investment. So that's why 3D printing has always been a great solution for very low volume production, because right. you don't have to invest in any of that hard tooling. To produce a part, you may have to invest $50,000 into mold right. to produce your first part. And Just the material cost for the mold, much less the engineering of it, machining of it. Exactly. <laughs> but once you scale up to hundreds of thousands of parts and you're amortizing that initial tooling investment into that process, that's all of a sudden when it makes sense. Printing has been making advances, leaps and bounds into the material science, making the parts great for end use applications. The speed performance throughput of the technology is greatly increasing. So yes, we're seeing a lot of adoption of this technology. There's companies like Smile Direct, right? Where, you know, that technology really wouldn't be in existence without 3D printing using the HP Multijet Fusion technology, those forms to vacuum form the clear plastic over them. That's what you're putting in your mouth and they're producing these custom tools to do the thermal forming in mass production. And uh, you're seeing sneaker insoles that are customized. So a lot of mass customization, a lot of parts that are otherwise very difficult to produce because 3D printing gives you a lot more flexibility in the designs. You're able to do design consolidation where maybe using traditional manufacturing processes, you'd have to have an assembly of several parts that then can be 3D printed as one complete part. 
So there's definitely a lot of advantages to it. But what I will tell you is that 3D printing is just like any other tool in the manufacturing world. It's just one tool that has specific applications it's great for, but there's still other tools that have been around for many years, like molding, thermal forming, CNC machining, die forming, casting, whatever, that have their strengths and will still be continued to be used for the foreseeable future. So 3D printing is not gonna replace all the other manufacturing methods. It's gonna supplement. Yeah, just like a lot of people who think that the internet was gonna crush retail, there'd be no more retail. So it, there's always a balance that, that forms and whether it's 50-50 or 70-30, it, it doesn't matter, but nothing like that typically goes away. And I've been watching for, as an investor, I've been watching companies like Proto Labs and Shapeways, and they have been very challenged at trying to get into manufacturing volumes or higher volumes in production because they're only thought of at the top of mind as people who can help in the prototyping phase. But when people want to go into manufacturing, regardless of the volume, they don't think of these companies as a first channel for manufacturing and ideally thinking about, hey, I can manufacture locally because they've got laser sintering, they've got metal working equipment, but they just, the approach to getting production work is a lot different. And it sounds like that's one of the hurdles that you've been able to get over as you move from a Stratasys machine into your desktop metals that are being used more in production. Correct, correct. And, and part, awesome. of, part of the challenge is just, I think especially here in the US, people like to take the safe route, right? If you have a widget that's been molded out of a certain type of plastic, and that's how it's always been done for the last 20, 30, 40 years, they don't want to venture from, nor do they have the expertise, what we call design for additive manufacturing or defense. What, how do you design a part for these 3D printing technologies? And the design for additive is not the same across all the technologies. What, right. The way you may design a part for one technology such as stereolithography may be different than how you would design something for FFF or in the case of HP, the multi-jet fusion or MGF technology. So we're a little bit behind the eight ball as far as educating the engineers on how to properly design and then getting the companies that are using these products or parts in their products to accept this new technology and these new materials. So it's a kind of a long drawn out process that I fear may have to be generational and learning to adopt that. So it's taking some time, but that's why we're here. And what we're trying to do is move the needle right. on this process a little bit. And But that's a tough situation to put yourself into, but you're being very successful around it because look at, auto, at autonomous vehicles, right? The politicians are thinking it's going to be here tomorrow. The same with 100% electric car use. But the reality is these things take 10, 20, 30 years to be adopted. And especially things like trucks are being tested autonomously, but only on a highway where they're typically only going forward. But <laughs> because the challenges of them having to back up and turn or anything else is going to be so much greater. That's going to take a long time. And the people in the trucking industry are really saying, we're just doing this to be in the know. But the reality is we don't think it's going to be there for 30 years. And so I'm keeping this economic model and we'll get there when we hit certain milestones. So has, so we've talked a lot about, you've had a product portfolio and some of those products, the vendors change their direction or they change the way in which you can make money and don't make it as, as successful as it has been, as they get more mature and as new competitors come on the market. As a business leader, have you faced other inflection points in your business that were based around either industry changes or based around the fact that you went from a million dollar business to a $5 million business? And has have things changed for you? And have, how have you dealt with those inflection points as a business leader? Yeah, so one of, one of the changes that we went through is we were from 
the inception, we were very CAD focused or engineering focused, computer aided design. That was always a big part of our business. In fact, our first two products were Mastercam and CADKey. Even if you're from the industry, you may not have heard of CADKey because it's got bought out and is now called something else. But really, we felt that CAD was becoming a commodity and it was more about price and the value of the value-added channel was becoming less important because kids were in high school now, they're learning CAD, learning it through college and they're coming out, they already know how to use the tools, they're already proficient in it, they don't necessarily need to take training. And another change that was occurring was that software was starting to pivot towards a software as a service business model. So rather than buying the software like you would your car, you could essentially rent it, okay? And that is something that's becoming extremely popular. If you use any package like Salesforce or NetSuite, you're using a software as a service product, which the entry price for that product is quite low compared to buying it. But typically, once you get three years into it, you're paying a lot more on an annualized basis for the product. That disruption that was occurring in that space was a little disconcerting to me, the commoditization of the CAD software. So I really felt that I wanted to focus more on the manufacturing side of the world because I felt that's where a lot of the innovation was occurring at because the CAD had really matured for the most part. And so that's, we were the number one, I would say not the number one, but let's say the first reseller of SOLIDWORKS in the world in 1995. And just seven years ago, we divested that because of those very reasons and felt it was time really to get out. Uh, whereas I mentioned earlier, a lot of my peers in the industry were just acquiring reseller after reseller and really becoming a huge organization for SolidWorks. And I wanted to really pivot more just towards the manufacturing side because the equipment was becoming more sophisticated, needed more support, additive manufacturing or 3D printing, as you know, is even though it's been around for 35 years, it's still considered a very immature industry, a lot of confusion in there where we can add value. So that's something that comes to mind when you ask that. And I have some questions here around change, but I think we've talked a lot of it. It seems your organization and you are very nimble at getting through these things, maybe not as fast as you'd like, but I don't think anybody ever achieves things as quickly as they'd like because they're always optimistic. And But hope is not a strategy, so you're doing the best you can with your strategies. That's amazing. Let me shift gears a little bit. What attributes do you think are important for a successful leader that you see, and how do you apply that to your role? I really believe in leading by example. I tend to treat myself as more of an employee of the company than an owner of the company. So I try not to take liberties that I wouldn't necessarily offer my own team. I'm in there getting my hands dirty every day. Maybe not at the pace I used to 30 years ago, but certainly I'm out there trying to get my hands dirty. I'd say another area that's important is really transparency. Most of the people who come to SimQuest cannot believe the information that I share. And that, that goes to back to some of the comments I made about managing change and making that successful and having that level of transparency. I really believe going back to the statement, I said that if you're all going to row in the same direction, you need the same information. And if you're not going to supply that information, you can't expect the team to row in the same direction and row as hard as you're rowing. So that's important. And I think trying to be fair, looking at things from the perspective of the employees and not just from a management perspective. Though it's fair, being fair is a very gray issue. It's not a black and white issue. So I'm sure there'll be people that have worked for SimQuest or who work for SimQuest today who feel I haven't been fair to them. So it's very subjective, but it's something that you should strive for. So those are some of the key important factors that I try and keep in mind. What figures or people have had the greatest impact on your career and your style and leadership roles? 
I do know that you met David Copperfield at some point in time in your past, but who are the people that you look up to that you said, oh, I really like that thinking, or I'm going to apply that and learn more about it? I like a lot of things that Jack Welsh has said from GE. One of one of the my favorite sayings of his is, when the rate of change outside the company is greater than within the company, you're basically slowly going out of business. So being able to embrace change. A more recent, somebody who I really am impressed with is Elon Musk. As I think I have a very early model of the Model S at serial number 194. I put a deposit down two and a half years before I got my car. When my wife found out about it, she wasn't too happy. And she's like, who's this Elon Musk guy? What are you doing? You haven't even seen the car. You haven't even driven the car. I'm like, yeah, but he's Elon Musk. And this is the future of the car industry. And that was almost 13 years ago. I really am impressed with what he's able to achieve and the chances he takes, which is impossible for any normal human being to live up to, but certainly if you take bits and pieces of what he has done and learn from them, he does work his people hard, but I think he creates a passion that a lot of people can key into. And that's one of the things I look for when I'm hiring people. I really look for people who are going to be passionate about what we do and what they would be doing at SimQuest. And I also, from hiring, just not to go too far off topic, but from a hiring perspective, I have a saying that to hire on your cap your capability, not on your capabilities, but your abilities to learn and improve yourself. That's very important as well, because I think a lot of times people get too tied up into their past experiences. And what I've found looking at people's resumes, that you can plug thousands of people into that same resume. And that's very true in the 3D printing industry. There's been a lot of people who have benefited greatly from being at the right place at the right time. And a lot of people in our industry are just trying to rehire the same people that really were successful, not because of their own capability, but because they're in the right place at the right time. And sometimes you may want to look at, look for the people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time and are really good quality people, but maybe haven't shined as well as they probably should have because of those situations. So that's something that I look for as well. That's really good, Rob. I've had a similar experience where what turns me on as a leading a business is watching people do things that they never thought that they would do, but they're happy doing it. And that's what gets me excited when I feel people pushing themselves in an area that they are good at but don't want but don't know how to admit it to themselves because they think they need to be 99% of the way there but they're 90% of the way there and it's probably doing better than anybody who's 99 and three more nines <laughs> yeah and the yeah. saying i was trying to think of earlier that i came up with was higher on potential and not credential i like that i like that a lot i'm gonna move to a couple more questions and then we'll wrap it up here but so what role has a board of advisors or a board or other advisors had on your learnings over the past 30 years and can you tell us do you have a board and is it of value to you and how what value does it help the business with we're a small company we're less than 60 people and I certainly believe that we're probably close to the size where we really should be considering a board. But I've, up till now, I've taken a different route and think I'm an open-minded individual who likes to hear ideas. And I found that if you have 50, 30, whatever quality people in your organization, and you set up a structure that can cultivate the ideas and opinions of your staff, that is a great board for you. I think a lot of times companies shut those doors and don't cultivate that information that's internally within the company. And that's to their own demise. So doing that, I think, is very important. One of the things that you really have to do if you're going to go that route is make sure that 
people understand that every day I come up with a hundred different ideas that I should consider or might want to consider. And after trying some and thinking th things through on some of them, 99 of those are really horrible ideas. So when somebody has an idea and they bring it to you, you have to educate them that coming up with those good ideas is extremely difficult. And you don't want to be too quick to shut down those ideas. You don't want to say, oh yeah, I tried that five years ago and it didn't work out. Take, if you want to cultivate that culture within the organization, you want to basically ask them why they think it would work. And then say, based on your own experience as well, what if this happens? Wouldn't that create a problem? And kind of talk them through the process, even if in the end, they realize their idea isn't so great. But you can learn from them, they can learn from you, and you appear to be much more open-minded than saying, yeah, that we tried that five years ago and it didn't work. Because for them to take the courage, especially if they're a low-level person in the company, to come to the CEO or founder of an organization with an idea, that takes a lot of guts. And if you're going to instantaneously shoot that down, you're going to shut down that knowledge stream. Interesting. Really good point. So switching gears for a minute, just thinking forward. So we're hopefully after two years of this pandemic and hopefully we've got the endemic, Boston finally just took down the mask policy on Saturday. I was ready to do a whole mask burning program like <laughs> the women did in the 60s with their bras. But I found out that I wasn't the first to think about that because there's a fire pit right on the waterfront that is going to go have a mask burning, but somebody else already did it first. But if you think about what's going on today that was not predicted or not considered, like increasing employee worker churn, a change in the work environments from everyone in person to most remote, and then there's going to be a hybrid, depending upon whether you need to be in the office or not need to be in the office. Demand shifts are changing. Customers were changing what they were buying. Look at our habits. Our habits changed. I only buy, I buy probably half the deodorant I used to buy. And I think about my wife, we've saved so much money on cosmetics because she doesn't have to go in the office every day. So demand is shifting. You've got supply chains that are upended and shifting because of buildups in the, on the waterfront and access to capital is changing and shrinkage is growing. People are stealing more. What are your reactions to this list as a part of the manufacturing industry? and a part of as an industry leader what can you share with others about what do you see going forward from here what do you see happening that's on the horizon that is exciting yeah i think the pandemic definitely has changed a lot of things one of the things i will say is that about seven years ago we took an industry leading position on remote training and we really put a lot of effort into making sure we had the technology and the trained staff to offer our training classes in a hybrid mode where people could come and take the class at our office where the instructor was teaching. They could opt to take that training at one of our other offices using our equipment and facility, but being live streamed into the class. And then, of course, they could stay at home and attend the class and have their bunny slippers on and everything like that. <laughs> so they could really participate in the training three different ways. And I would say we got to the point prior to the pandemic where about 10% of our students were remote. But obviously, once the pandemic hit and everybody was shut down, a lot of our a lot of our industry peers were all scrambling to say, hey, how are we going to train our customers? And we were all set to go. It really didn't awesome. take much for us to do that. And obviously there was a point at which 100% of our students were all taking training remotely. Today, it's close to about 50%, 5-0% of our students are remote. So it seems to be sticking. And it also benefits the customers because they don't have the travel expenses. They are able to take a class more readily because 
maybe we have a couple of different offices. So they had to wait through the rotation until the training was being offered more locally to them. So instead of having the training available to them in a couple of weeks, they maybe had to wait two months for that class to be in the area. But now there is a lot more acceptance to taking the training remotely. And we've gotten great feedback from it where people are literally sending comments in our survey saying, you know what, this is just about as good as taking the class in person. There's still a preference to be in person for most people, but it's truly effective. So that's one change that has occurred from the pandemic, which I think is positive, quite honestly. I'm hoping that the U.S. educational system learns from this and start offering more training in this manner, because I think educationally, we're not as efficient as we could be when there's an expert at teaching physics on the West Coast in some high school somewhere that could be teaching everybody in the country at the high school level. Good point. Hopefully those changes continue to propagate and improve things. Obviously there's the work from home issue, which has been an extremely challenging issue to work with, right? Because people are hearing, our employees are hearing about a lot of companies that are offering work from home or hybrid business model. And I think one of the, one of the smart things I did was when the shutdown happened, I was quick to point out that eventually when the pandemic is over, everybody will be returning to work. Okay. Because I felt that if I opened up that floodgate and I allowed certain people who truly could be trusted to work from home efficiently or have the right position within the company to be effective remotely, and I start allowing them to do it, it was going to create ill will for those who are not in that situation. So I felt that bringing everybody back to work for a certain period of time, which we're at that stage right now, but then creating solid guidelines as to how the work from home and hybrid model is going to work and be able to put thought into it and roll that out as a perk and not something that happened because of a pandemic, I think is a better strategy for us. And we'll start rolling that out within the next two months or so. Very well put, Rob. I think that's very effective way to set expectations so that they're not, so that everyone will be treated fairly and equally, but then realize that you need to put things in place for this hybrid model or for this three days a week or one day a week, whatever you want to do to provide flexibility for your workforce so that they appreciate what you're doing for them. That's really good. Yeah. And there's a lot of issues around that. And it's interesting with the younger generation and even with my own kids that if I have the opportunity to work at SpaceX or Tesla, and I knew my cubicle was going to be 50 feet from Elon Musk's office, would I even consider wanting to work remote at all. Even if I had an hour and 15 minute commute, I'd be in there right. every day. And I think that's something that the younger generation just doesn't have a good appreciation for. And it's gonna hurt them because one of the interesting situations with work from home is prior to work from home, you were competing against the five talented people in the office. But now if you can work from anywhere, your company can hire anybody. In. So now the right. pool of talent that you're going to be competing against is extremely greater than what it would be. So that also works against you. So if you have the opportunity to go into the office and work and be seen and interact with management, that's a huge advantage. We are definitely going to go the hybrid route. There are some people in the company that absolutely need to be in the office every day because they're operating the 3D printers or handling shipping or logistics or whatever. It's, we have to figure this out and we'll try and create fair rules and guidelines. So everybody understands. And that's part of creating a good culture is communicating and being fair. Yeah. And trying to accelerate the learning curve is more difficult to do remotely than it is in person. And so in those environments where you're trusting people to back to our earlier point of having potential, 
they're not going to reach their potential as fast as if in a remote situation if they have a lot to learn. And so I agree with you on that. And I think that it's a tough balance, but there's a lot of people with expectations. One more question here, and then I'll uh, we got to wrap it up, I think. But one of the things I've been finding is some middle market owners have actually appreciated working from home as well. And I've met a number of people. And again, this is just analogous. It's not statistically valid or anything, but there's a lot of owners that have realized that they enjoy working from home. They enjoy spending more time with their family and maybe working in their business or on their business isn't as much of a priority and that they're starting to spend less time with their companies. And in some cases, it's great because they're prepared and they've learned how to delegate and they understand how the hit by the bus scenario where the the business should be able to continue to run without them because they work on the business, not just inside the business and in the business. Have you been finding that as well in the manufacturing sector and the people you're dealing with? Is that happening where they're starting to spend less time on their businesses and are their businesses doing well for that? Or are their businesses starting to be concerned because of the owners wanting to spend more time with their on their other parts of their balanced life. Yeah, it's tough for me to speak to about other companies on that point. I can certainly talk about it from my own perspective. There's obviously different types of personalities in a company. I'm the type of person that I really enjoy face-to-face time. It's very important for my quality of life and motivation and happiness. It's nice to be able to shake people's hands. It's nice to be able to hear things going on around the office that I otherwise would not hear. I felt more detached from the company during the shutdown. So definitely my preference is to be at my office in the company. I think I've come to appreciate the ability to be more flexible. And certainly as we go more hybrid, I'll be a participant in that model. But there are some people that are just happy putting their noses to the grindstone and not interacting with people and not needing to be in person with people. And they get their excitement from their day-to-day job and they don't need that social aspect of being in person. So there's all different types of people and also it's different with different size organizations, right? If you're running a thousand person company, you have to learn how to manage remotely because you're remote. Even if you're in the office, you're remote to majority of your company. And I'm probably at that point with close to 60 people where I'm at that stage as well, where I have to probably learn how to do a better job managing the company remotely because we have other offices. I used to go to those offices every couple of months or so. I haven't been to our Sterling Mass office in two years. It's definitely affected things. And it's that's the great thing about being in a company and running a company is every day is a learning, learning opportunity. And that's an area where I probably have to get a little bit more comfortable myself. That's a great lesson in itself, Rob. And I appreciate your humility and sharing. And I really, this has been a great discussion with you and dialogue. And I just have always admired what you've been doing in growing your business and taking market share and then realizing that it's time to get out of a certain product for whatever reason and able to shift and be nimble with your organization. So thank you for sharing all that. Tell us how can we get in touch with you, Rob? And by the way, your all the information will be below the video cast and the podcast, and I'll edit this out. But how can people get in touch with you and follow you? Yeah, I'd say I'm not in a lot of social platforms. I think my primary platform that I'll, I use and I try and post only when I have something significant to say is LinkedIn. That tends to be my platform of choice. And certainly if you want to email me and open up a dialogue, I'd be happy to do that either through email or LinkedIn. And just like to hear from people and hopefully learn from others as I've continued to do over the past 30 years. And can you, so can you, do you want to share your email address and your website address? Sure. Website address is 
simquest-inc.com. That is C-I-M as in Mary, Q-U-E-S-T, hyphen, Inc., that's I-N-C, dot com. And my email address is rhasseld, that's R-H-A-S-O-L-D, at simquest-inc.com. Please okay. feel free to reach out to me. And David, I really appreciate the invite to participate in this and hopefully people get something out of this. Thank you. This has been a great experience for me and I hope it will be for our viewers and thank you for your time. It's been really greatly appreciated. Thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for watching and listening. We really look forward to hearing from you about one, your thoughts on our guests and their insights. Two, identifying speakers that you want to hear from. Three, what did you learn and take away from this event? And were you able to apply something you learned immediately back in your organizations and role as a balanced leader? You can always subscribe to get our event and guest schedule, as well as access to previous programs at our website at https colon slash slash www.acrylicgroup.com slash e while there. Leave us your comments and thoughts or if you want to explore your goals needs, and challenges, schedule a complimentary call with us. Have a great day and be a balanced leader.